Tim Blankenship here with Divorce661.com, and today we're talking with Kimberly Keene, who is a family law attorney in San Diego. Hey, Kim, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Tim? I'm doing well. Glad you're doing well. Glad we got together today. I know your, your practice and uh, working as a family law attorney keeps you busy. This was like our second reschedule, I think. Um, yes. You had a busy caseload, I think, and court kept you over, and then I think last week I had an allergy attack. <laughs> So um, just to introduce you quickly, and then I'll let you kind of take over. Uh, Kim is a San Diego native, and you please correct me if I get something wrong. Um, currently a family law attorney, practicing family law, obviously in the San Diego area and covers all courts in San Diego County. And I believe you are mostly kind of in the North County area, but you also handle cases down Central and South, I imagine. Yeah, all over. Okay. Um, just kind of looking at your website, and it seems like um, you have a kind of a goal of focusing on women's issues, you know, domestic violence restraining orders, but I, 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 I gather you will take all comers. Do you want to just kind of give us a, a brief overview of what you got going on and a little bit about yourself, and then we'll kind of go from there? Yeah, sure. So um, I definitely don't just focus on women's issues. That's something that is a Kind of a passion project of mine so i like to volunteer at different domestic violence clinics and things like that um, but i find that in my practice where i do get paid um, i tend to actually prefer to focus on more complex financial aspects of divorce so i like to focus on by the way just divorce um, in family law i don't like to I do do here and there, um, you know, like paternity actions and just child custody actions, child support, things like that. But I do prefer to just focus on divorce um, and particularly high asset and also high conflict divorces, because I just find that really? to be the most satisfying. I, you know, it's funny because, you know, they always say lawyer, if you're a lawyer, you're not good at math. Um and I didn't ever think that math was a subject that I enjoyed uh, growing up. But I think as I've become an attorney and everything is so word based and it, it can become very convoluted and you kind of get lost in what you're really requesting. I find that when I'm just focusing on the numbers and formulas and what have you paid or what do you owe or what's owed you, I actually find that a lot more um, that focus to be more rewarding. Um, I think especially because in family law, things can get very kind of lost in translation, um, especially with clients, because there's a lot of emotions obviously involved. And I think that getting back to the numbers, back to the formulas, back to the law kind of grounds everybody involved. And then I, I tend to feel too in that way that there's more of a fair shake at the end of it than just kind of listening to testimony and okay, this person's more credible than that person. Well, the numbers, they can, I mean, they can lie technically, you can fudge your numbers, but it's harder to do that than it is, um, I think, to go and go on the stand and um, try to convince the judge of, you know, a situation that may or may not always be true using emotions. So I like to focus on more of the technical aspect of divorce. So just you try and focus on the facts and, and less on the emotion is, is what you're saying for the most part? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I mean, it's you it's hard to completely, you know, pull them apart, obviously. 
but um but I think the more I focus on that, the more satisfying, honestly, my practice is for me. And I think the more rewarding it is for the client, because um, it's not just he said, she said anymore, which is a big complaint too in family law, especially dealing with lawyers as they kind of prey on that or play, I don't want to say prey, but play on that kind of emotional aspect in order to get your case forward. And um, I'm sure you've noticed this too. I mean, you're not in like the litigation side of it, but right. in a lot of pleadings and things like you'll see an attack on like even the other attorney um, or, you know, the meet and confer efforts. And it, it becomes very petty, you know, and th ultimately that's not what the judge wants to see. That's not what the law is based on. And so um, I try to avoid that as much as possible. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So what you do is even though we're, I, I didn't want to say there's some crossover because I like, it's interesting that you want to handle high conflict. And if I get, if I hear one inch of a disagreement at all uh, there, I don't want to work with them. Just, I can't, I don't have the tolerance for it. Um, I, it frustrates me to um, have people bicker and just, you know, not, and it's focused, like you're saying, they focus on the emotional versus just, if they would just put the emotion aside and get into doing, first of all, what's best for the kids. Right. And then figuring out the assets and go from there. Does your, do you see this? It sounds like you see this both in like, like pleadings with the court, but also in what maybe the attorneys are writing um, in motions and so forth and kind of putting down, like you said, the attorneys and putting all that mess into it versus just focusing on the facts. Does that what what, what I'm interested, like when these go to court and the judge is reading these, what how does are they not realizing that that's not having a benefit to them when they're when they're doing those types of things? I mean, I think it, it can, it has a time and place, you know, if, if you're asking for sanctions, for example, for litigious conduct, um, that obviously has a place there. Or if somebody failed to meet and confer, it has the place there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, it is something that a lot of attorneys just kind of like to do, you know, they like to fight and they like to poke holes on the other side. So either it, whether it's relevant or not, it does like inevitably come up. Um, and I, I do point more to the attorneys on this than clients, because this is really an attorney thing. Obviously clients, if they're representing themselves pro per, uh, I don't blame them because it's, it, they don't know, you know, it's like, they're not an attorney. They're not quite sure what to put in pleadings or how to frame their arguments in a way that, you know, is, is the best way possible. So I really point my finger there at the attorneys, but um, I don't know if it really does much damage. I have seen a few cases. Uh, usually the judge kind of just ignores it. But um, I have seen a few cases where the attorneys are pointing things out about the other side or they're refusing service and they're doing this. And the judge will just come in and say, you need to figure it out. And they'll say that the same thing to the parties, too. Right. If they're um, especially with child custody disputes, if they're both, um, you know, back and forth, like, he won't drop him off on time. And here's 10 instances of that. The judge doesn't want to make orders about that unless it's something that's, you know, pretty egregious or putting the child in harm's way. So they'll just, you know, kick it back to them and say, you know, you need to learn to co-parent better. It's essentially what they do with the attorneys too. You need to learn to lawyer better or to develop a relationship with opposing counsel that is beneficial because I don't want to deal with it. That you're talking about the judge. Yeah. You know, it. Um, do you find that 
being more of kind of working collaboratively to the degree you can when representing your clients versus it going to trial? Do you find that there are attorneys that are more just they want to take it to court? They don't want to negotiate a deal. They'd rather just go and see what the, the judge orders and tr thinking they'll get their client the best deal or is it kind of 50-50? How does that pan out? I definitely think there are certain firms and attorneys who prefer to litigate, um, but I don't necessarily think that's a, a horrible thing. Um, I think as long as you're, you know, you're making your good faith effort to mean confer and um, do everything that's required of you to settle and you're not pushing your client to, um, you know, go to court, even if it's not in their best interest, I think that it's still a good, it's a balancing act, right? Because I really do enjoy having, being able to negotiate a good settlement for my client. That's really satisfying. Um, and I think it's just as satisfying as going to court and winning on a motion or winning at a trial, um, especially because a lot of, you know, in both instances, there's a, there's a push and pull. You're never going to get exactly what you want for your client. Um, that's just mm -hmm. how it is. Um, so I think there's satisfaction in both. There's some attorneys who do prefer to litigate over settling. But like I said, I don't really knock them for that because in some ways settling can be detrimental to the more detrimental to the client than going to court. You know, um, there are instances where the other side offers them something, um, an offer. Oh, I don't know if we froze or if you froze. Uh oh. That's okay. I think we're back. Okay. <laughs> I don't know where we yeah. left off, but um... I guess I'll be doing some editing. Um, so, um, <laughs> no, you were talking about it, it, it. Sometimes it can be to the detriment by not litigating. Yes. And I think that, you know, on one end, you know, you have to be. Um, you have to make sure that settlement is number one because you're in family law, but you also have to be, um, you know, you have to represent your client's best interests. And it's always a, you know, it's always a give and take with that. But yeah, I, I, and honestly, sometimes it's almost easier to work with those attorneys because you know what they're going to do. You know, it's, it's right. more predictable. Right. You know that they're going probably going to end up on, at court. You know, they're probably not going to agree to your settlement offer. And honestly, I think that it does make me a better attorney because then I can see, oh, they're, they're saying, you know, uh, even if it's just a, a threat, like there's a sanctions of a certain amount. Oh, I didn't, I didn't really know that you could do that for this, even if they don't pursue it, you know, and then it forces you to keep you on your toes. It forces you to, um, respond also aggressively in a way that is maybe more creative than them. You know, if they're coming at you aggressively, all of a sudden you find yourself on the defense. You don't really want that. You want to make sure that you're always on the offense. So if they mm. already have caught you a little bit behind, it forces you to get more creative, forces you to kind of advocate even stronger for your client. So I don't always think that it's a bad thing that attorneys are like that. Yeah, when you were talking about, you know, meet and confer and, and trying to settle, I, I remember, so going back, I was just looking at the notes that I had taken, you you had started, well, not started, one of your uh, experiences was as a volunteer law clerk for San Diego Superior Court uh, as a, in the family court uh, law facilitator's office. And um, 
so in, in in doing so, you saw kind of the behind the scenes. You got to see kind of the court. Now, was that in the in the family law facility? Or is that like the self help center, or was that what, what? Am I getting that right? Yeah, it's essentially what it is. It's um, it's kind of a self help versus you can also talk to attorneys, but since they're working for the court, they can't give pro pers legal advice or anything like that. But um, yeah, it was a really it was a really great place to start family law for sure. For sure. I was just, uh, because I, my background is kind of similar in, I was working at the court as well, um, as a, uh, volunteer judicial assistant. So in the courtroom, so got to see all the play on how that, and the, I would be in you know judges chambers and you got to know, know all the behind the scenes of that. So when you're talking about the whole meet and confer and all that, I, re I remembered cause I don't, we, we don't do anything with court actions. I remembered that uh, there was a ramp up. It wasn't just you file for divorce, you're not in agreement, you go to trial. There's a lot of, that goes in between and, and, and you know, attempted mediation and direction from the court before. I mean, th are they still treating the trials as a last resort? Like they, they try and do get you guys to do everything before it'll actually end up in front of the judge? Yeah, I mean, trial is kind of a last resort. Um, you always hear that, right? I mean, even when when I'm in court, the judge will always make sure that we're meeting and conferring. If there's if they see that there's you know four or five RFOs on calendar, they're going to bring it up, you know, and they're going to make probably a separate order for um, you to try to at least consolidate the hearings and things like that. So it's always it's always that balancing act, you know, because you, especially as an attorney, because you want to make sure, you know. For me, I don't I don't want my client to agree to a settlement if I know that they could probably win at trial, you know, and that's a decision that you make with your client. Um, but you also don't want to piss off the judge, you know, and that happens right. um, quite a lot if you're filing a lot of motions or especially uh, like DVROs that maybe maybe you shouldn't file or maybe, you know, you can easily settle with the other side. So. Um, it's definitely a balancing act, but yes, the law um, encourages it, judges encourage it. And I think at the facilitator's office, it's, it's a little different because they're not really encouraging anything. It's just, hey, I want to file this and then here's how you right. do it in the form. Right. Yeah. Do you have to have the conversation with your clients when negotiating um, settlements to say, hey, you know, I think if we went to trial, this and I'm, and I'm coming at this from more of like kind of the financial front and attorney's fees. Like, hey, I could probably get you a better deal if we get go to trial, but this could be another, you know, 50 hours or, you know, something like that. Is there a point when sometimes you may just, you know, there it's, it's kind of what's it called? Good money after bad or bad money after good as far as, you know, I can get this, but at the end of the day, you're going to be net negative. Yeah. I mean, that comes up all the time. Every day um, you're always weighing the you know the benefits of of okay look even honestly any motion and any you know it obviously particularly comes up when the client starts you know they've been represented for a long time maybe it's a really litigious case and then they all say hey how much more do we have to go you know yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes it's years and um and then at that point you have to assess they have to assess whether they want to continue keeping you on whether they want to do some things themselves um, things like that. But it's, it's always a, it's definitely a conversation that comes up. I would say, honestly, almost every day with clients about, mm. um, and I think that's normal. And, you know, I'll even bring it up um, if they don't ask, because I think that's fair, especially if, you know, let's say they're trying to pursue 
um, modifying, you know, some support order that ends soon or something like that. And then I'll run the numbers quickly and say, look, you know, we can do this, but you're going to be out more than if we actually won right. this motion. Yeah. So that's definitely a consideration all the time. You're bringing that up. I mean, it's pretty much it's divorce. It's always, you're always going to have these conversations about yeah. money and attorney's fees. I thought it was funny slash not funny. So I also worked for a family law attorney about 11 years ago as a, as a paralegal um, for maybe a year before starting this business. And we'd always know when the billing went out. So there, I don't know if this is how the retainers are still today, um, but they would have a, you know, they'd have a you know retainer that they'd pay, but in the agreement in the retainer agreement, it said, you know, this is obviously just the getting started money. Once we go over these hours, we don't have to really notify you. We're just going to continue billing and you'll get a statement every month. And we would know because we had, I think we had maybe seven paralegal staff. So it was a pretty big firm. And we would know when uh, billing went out because the phones would light up of people wanting to settle because they just got their bill. Yeah. Yeah. It, same thing here. I mean, we, the, the day we send out invoices, it's pretty much guaranteed that you're going to get a call or two, yeah. you know? Um, but I think on, I, I found that the best way to mitigate that is, I mean, it's, it's a balance too because you don't want to underbill because you are performing a service. You are doing the right. work. You don't want to cut yourself short. That's, right. I think that's not fair to you, but that's also not even fair to the client because it's like, you know, why would you want to see on your bill that your attorney spending 10 minutes, like 0.2, 10 minutes on preparing for your hearing? They should probably be preparing more than that. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think the best way I found to mitigate that surprise is by telling them up front, this is generally the monthly retainer that you're going to see. And then it kind of sets their expectation of, okay, um, it could be less some months, could be more some months, but if you give them a ballpark of, you know, within 500 to $1,000 each month that they're expecting to see on their bill, they definitely are, uh, they will contest it less and they'll question it less. And I, I think that's something that attorneys need to work on in general, obviously with a flat fee practice like yours, it's, um, a lot easier. People know what to expect, but, um, but you know, it, it's a balance too, because not everything can be flat fee. A lot of things, you know, you do have to do on an hourly basis, but I do think as attorneys, we can definitely do better in notifying our clients um, and bringing them up to speed on what their, their bill is going to be, because I can't imagine being, they're spending so much money a month and I can't imagine being surprised at a bill every month. And maybe my credit card is going to go into collection right. because I'm just trying to get this service for myself. So, um, so yeah, I think being more transparent about billing up front ahead of time, because, you know, because once the client starts disputing the bill and you're going back and backtracking and justifying everything that you've inputted, you know, it's already, it's, it's already a dispute, you know, and they're not going to want to work with you after that, after you're, they think that your bill is not justified. So I think being, to answer your question, I think being more up, um, up front, about the general range of what they can expect each month, I found does help with that uncertainty. And I'm sure that varies, right? Because there's a lot of upfront work when you start a new case, if they come in new, right? You got to do the filing and maybe there's an RFO and, and, and discovery or, you know, the disclosures, all those things that take time. And then if it's, 
then it's negotiating. I think it, what does it start, start off pretty heavy billing and then it kind of mellows out. And then if there's core, it's going to pick up again. Is that kind of what people yeah. would see? Yeah, that's generally how it is. I mean, you, I think it starts out moderate because you have, you have a lot of things to file and get information and all that. And then it kind of mellows out. And then if you have hearings, it goes up and down, but I found that generally like it depends on how litigious the case is. So you can kind of tell up front, depending on like how much, how many, uh, how much assets there are, how, you know, what the debts are, um, what the incomes are generally. And then the personalities too, of your client and opposing counsel, you can kind of tell pretty soon how you think, um, the fees are going to go. So, um, but you know, either way, if they have an invoice one month, that's half of what it usually is. They're never going to complain. Right. It's right. just when it's, above what you've quoted them. So that's why you have to be careful um, and not quote too low as an estimate. Gotcha. Yeah. So I had um, a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you. And I, I know we kind of, we just got right into this uh, with our conversation. Um, so one of the questions I wanted, if I could just, we could back up and then we'll get back into what we're talking about. Why did you decide on family law in the first place? You know, it's... Um, it's a question I, I don't know how to answer. There, every time I tell everybody I'm a family law attorney, that's always the first question is why? Because it seems so, I guess, awful to a lot of people to deal with. Um, but for me, I find it, I think as you were saying, what we were kind of discussing in the beginning is that I find it um, satisfying. I mean, because at the end of the day, I'm dealing with people at their worst and I'm able to protect them and help them in some way at the end of it. So whether that's through settlement or through trial, there is some resolution that comes out of it. And I think I've definitely seen, you know, not everyone comes out of divorce completely bitter. Not everyone comes out of divorce hating their attorney. It really depends on the relationship between the attorney and the client. And so I really try to foster that relationship with the client where they know that, I'm looking out for their best interests. And if that's to save money, that's one thing. If that's to, you know, protect their assets, that's another thing. But the strategy is always going to change depending on who you're working with. And so it's really important to foster that close relationship with your client. They're not just a number, you know, they're not someone that um, you're just trying to put on your invoices each month. Um, and that to me is the satisfying part is not just getting the results for them, but if you have that relationship for them, they're going, you know, it's going to be that much more rewarding because you really are rooting for them. You know, it's not just in your job. You, you know, I, they always say not to take your job home with you, but it's, it's really hard for me not to do that. It's, and I'm okay with it. You know, if I, if I find that it's worthwhile and I think that it is the more that those relationships are cultivated with clients. Yeah, that, I think it's definitely something I think it would be unnormal to be able to put all of what you deal with, especially in family law behind you. If it was like business law or something that's you know non-emotional, you're not dealing with people mm -hmm. like that. Right. I mean, there's no way you can't. I'm sure you're going to bed some nights and you're like, oh, gosh, I wish I could not be thinking about that right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, of course, all the time. But like I said, I think it depends on the outcome. Like if if I'm thinking about something 24 seven, a hearing coming up and we win that motion, that's worth it to me. You know, 
it's it's not even about the money and then to see the client happy coming out of court and saying you know he's gonna go to vegas this weekend be, like that's amazing i love that you know and that's kind of why i do what i do you know it's um it's an emotional it's an emotional practice but for some reason um it's almost like the client's emotions kind of regulate mine like if i was overly emotional and they didn't care about their case I think that would be a problem, but because I see them and they're emotional and there's so many different ways that this can affect their life. Um, you know, I feel like it's justified. Uh, talking about, you know, emotions, all that, can you just kind of going to the next, the next question of emotions is common mis misconceptions people have about family who is and do you have to have those conversations and and kind of be more of that guiding light on how you see that process going yeah i mean yes that happens a lot i think just as your uh job as an attorney is to make sure that you do clear up some misconceptions um with clients and then also with just the general public that asks you about what you do for a living, um, even though I don't think that you're required to. Um, but that's, you know, that's kind of the process, right? And it's a practice. So every day, I mean, every judge is different. Every client is different. Every case is different. The law is always changing. So um, the facts are always changing. So, um, but yeah, I think clearing up misconception and misconceptions are um, part of your job, part of what you do every day. And that's, that's okay. Are there one or two that there's, are there any commonalities of misconceptions or is it just across the board? Mm, I think dealing with, in terms of client misconceptions, um, I think a big one honestly is with child custody cases. Um, they, they just, a lot of people just can't grasp the fact that you know, you're not going, you're, you're probably 90% of the time, not going to get your child, um, all the time. You're going to have to split it with the other partner. And, um, I think because it's such an emotional process, people really get wrapped up in these little things that are happening, you know, and it's like, well, he was an hour late 10 times. So therefore I'm going to get primary custody. And it's just like, it's just not the case. And it's hard to, manage that with somebody because I understand why they feel that way. You know, it's like, look, he's being irresponsible. Maybe he, he shows that he doesn't even care about taking care of the kid. Well, it doesn't matter. You know, he's the father. As long as the kid's under 18, the court's going to generally want both of you to see the kid, unless there's something one of you is doing that's severely detrimental to them. So I think that's like the biggest misconception um, it, it always revolves around child custody, probably because it's just the emotions are like tenfold because it's, you're dealing with their, you know, they're dealing with their kid and then they're dealing with their kid with their ex who they now hate. <laughs> so, right. um, I think that's the biggest one. And then I, probably the second one is of course cost. Um, I think a lot of people have a misconception that divorce can cost, you know, a couple thousand dollars and then it's over. It can, but if you're litigating, it most certainly won't. Um, so like we were saying before, I think clearing those things up beforehand is always going to be more helpful to the client. 
are these uh, things that kind of come up in an initial consultation or is it in, in addition to that also management of emotions and so forth throughout the process? I would, as I say that, I guess the, the answer is probably yes to that. Yeah, yes to both. Um, it'll come up in consultation. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, yeah, and it's just kind of a process. When it comes up, it, it comes up. And I think nipping it in the bud right then and there is your best way to handle that. Makes sense. The um, the child custody issue. Do you find that people? I think, and I think this is what you were you were saying. But I just want to ask you again. The when it comes to the kids, do people seem to focus in, or can have the? They can tend to focus in on on one subject, not necessarily the kids. Maybe it's spouse support or you know mm-hmm. property division, whatever it might be, versus looking at net more of a kind of a global settlement. How, how do you manage that with, with your clients to say, Hey, yes, you're kind of not getting everything you want over here, but if you're getting a little bit more than you want over here. Yeah. I think that's, that comes up all the time. There's always going to be one issue that some, somebody um, is more emotional about than the others. Most of the time with child custody, sometimes it can be support. Sometimes it can be something really small, like, um, certain items that they have at this ex-spouse's house. Um, a lot of times it is the home itself because it's their marital home and nobody wants to leave it. So yeah, there usually is like one or two issues that they tend to focus on more. Um, and I think the second part of your question was, um, how do you handle that or how do you do that, handle that with a client? Yeah, we were just saying, no, that, that was it. Basically, that we were talking about the global settlement versus people focusing in on yeah. a specific oh, and then I issue. Think you asked how, how do you... Like redirect them. them. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, I mean, that's always a process that has to happen all the time. I, I think a good redirector is letting them know that you've, you prioritize this issue as much as they do and focusing on it as much as they are, because that is what's important to them. So you can't just ignore it. Um, But I think also, yes, coming into picture everything else that's at issue and maybe, okay, let's redirect your attention for a couple weeks or a couple months on these other things that we need to get resolved. Um, But I do think that once they feel that this issue is is just as important to you as it is to them and they see that you're taking action about it then things naturally just kind of become more in perspective for them gotcha <clears throat> if we could move i want to since we're about literature in court i want to ask if it's okay some specific question just for my knowledge base and so when i'm talking to my clients on how things like with us they have to decide everything and i can you know, I can point them in the right direction as far as, you know, saying them links written by attorneys that explain certain things. But obviously, you know, the law can be very gray, a lot of gray as far as how things is, you know, not very clear cut. It's not black and white, that's for sure. So I'll send them several links for the information written by attorneys so they can kind of digest that and read that and see how they want to play that out and maybe use that for their own negotiating versus, you know, before they step off with attorneys to go and try and figure that out. So I want to, again, for my benefit, so I can help my clients in the future. But I want to talk about a couple specific things to see what you're seeing in court on things that, that we are trying to help our clients through. Because sometimes they'll say, well, according to this article, if you go to court, this is a kind of similar situation and this is what happens. You might want to consider that. Um, mm-hmm. With, with you had brought up the family home and not wanting to sell it. 
we are seeing, it seems like there's always one spouse um, a lot of times that wants to keep the family home, especially if there's minor children involved, they want to keep mm-hmm. the family home. And many times this, both spouses are agreeing with that. And we're getting some interesting um, settlement agreements that we're putting together for them to include, you know, even with young children, them maintain the home together for 10, 12 years until the kids turn 18 for, for a variety of reasons. One, they want to wait till the kids turn 18. Two, they don't want to refinance at today's high rates because maybe they end the 3% and if they refi, it's at seven. Um, we had a, one today where they um, just bought the home like a month ago and now they're getting divorced. But now, so if they sell, there's going to be capital gains. So there's just a whole, and so there's a whole um, variety of reasons people are keeping the home. What are you seeing when, so the issue, and the issue I want to bring up is in a case where a spouse doesn't want to refinance the property because they don't want to get that interest rate, but the other spouse wants to get bought out, they don't want to wait years and, and you know have the market fluctuations and see what happens. Are you seeing that in court? And how is, how is the judge handling, like what are some of the things that judge weighs in making a decision on whether they should sell it? Because the judge ultimately can make the decision, no, order the household, right? Or, mm-hmm. or you know, go see if you can refinance it regardless of the rate and do the buyout. How? What are you seeing in court kind of related to that? Yeah, I mean, generally the judge and the court doesn't like to make really intricate decisions like that without either like experts being involved. Um, mm-hmm. But generally speaking, if the parties can come to some sort of agreement, even to some of those issues, like, for example, they can agree on the refinancing. Um, that makes a big difference. So I think if they can, I mean, it's easier said than done, but if they can come to an agreement in some respect regarding the house, that's always going to look and be a lot easier for the court to deal with, even if it's not to every issue um, regarding the house. And then I think also a thing, um, something that they a lot of couples can or divorcing couples can um, should utilize is other resources besides just attorneys, you know, talk to your real estate guy, talk to your finance guy. Um, They're always going to give you kind of creative options that your attorney is not able to give you. Um, And I think don't be afraid to just uh, enlist um, people that you think will have have your best interests at heart in that regard, especially like a financial consultant, things like that, because I've seen them come up with um, uh, solutions for them that obviously, you know, I can't come up with. Um, I had a client who um, had an issue, same thing with the home, and she hired a real estate attorney to help her with coming up with different ideas. She had a financial um, guy that she was friends with. And so they worked together and then they were giving me, um, you know, the advice and what they found and what they suggested. And then I was applying that and then it ended up that they were able to settle that. So um, I think being able to, you know, if you can't come to a settlement, if it's too complicated, then I think enlisting experts either to testify for you at trial, you know, worst case scenario, or I think the better option too is just not be a to not be afraid in, in consulting other professionals, whether it le- be legal or financial, to help you come up with a solution that's a little different. I find that interesting that, if I understood you correctly, that the judges don't necessarily make intricate decisions on certain things. At what point will 
they what they have had to their satisfaction all the information they think they need to make that decision and i would imagine that that doesn't happen at a single hearing it would be get this information have these experts write their report and submit their declarations and then they'll take it under consideration for a future hearing but at some point if the parties don't agree the judge will eventually have to make a decision correct yeah that's right and then at that point um that'll be at a trial and then at that point it'll also they'll then take into consider consideration all the other issues so of course the family law um code and the courts are try at least in california the general policy is to make sure that both parties are coming out with an equal division of pretty much everything um so if they can you know, whether maybe some person gets the house, um, well, then they'll get a buyout or this person refinances, um, this person will get credit for it, you know, or they pay the mortgage, they get credit for it, things like that. So at the end of the day, when there is something that's really intricate, um, detailed, and maybe the judge doesn't have the tools to decide what's best, they will, of course, consider everything that's involved, um, the whole marital estate, and try to divide it in a way that is generally equal. So, it, it, and again, it's interesting that that the, the because the judges aren't just outright making decisions for people and they kind of push it back on the attorneys and the parties to consider their options and making decisions as far as with, say, now jumping over to, you know, community property, you had brought, you know, we talked about the house, you're talking about, uh, you know, we can talk about 401ks, pensions and, and buyouts and, and just like offsets um, you know, for one asset, for another, one debt, for another, et cetera. Are, are, is that happening with that as well? They're kind of pushing that back to the attorneys to, to go for further settlement or to the parties to sit down again and, and discuss it as opposed to the judge just outright saying, well, this is what I've decided. Cause that's kind of, is that kind of the judge's last resort? Like, okay, we've tried, you guys have tried to do this three hearings later. I'm just going to make the decision. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking in family court, that's what you can expect is like the judge really wants to see you come to them with something that they can work with. So, you know, obviously worst comes to worst, you have a trial, then they'll decide. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of, it's an interesting thing because there's not a whole, the, the idea that you're playing with dividing things equally actually makes it kind of easier because it's like, okay, well, this thing we cannot decide on, but um, we'll, you know, the judge will make a decision on that. And okay, you're losing, you can quantify it. Like you can quantify how much time you're losing um, with the child, for example, or you can quantify how much money you're losing with this asset being given to the other side. So then there is a way to ultimately equalize it at the end. Right. Whether it be through equal division or some other offset from another asset or debt. You know, it's so interesting. Before I got very, very, very strict about the type of clients I would take now, you know, again, if you're not 100% in agreement, I, I'll, I'll turn you away. But before we'd get, you know, say five years ago, still like, you know, five years into this, I'd have people say on the phone, yeah, we're not in agreement. Just I want to get to court and see what the judge orders. So with, mm -hmm. with this information, that's not quite how that works. Yeah, I mean... Of course, if you're not in agreement, then you have to go to a hearing to resolve it in some way. Um, but I guess it depends on the issue because the judge is ultimately going to order something at some point. Um, and I think um, it, it really depends on who is bringing the best case right to the judge. So if some person's not bringing much, 
then they'll probably rule in the other person's favor. So somebody will, it'll balance out in some way. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it depends what you're talking about. Cause there's so many different th issues that you can necessarily disagree on. Um, and then how you really, how you present your case to the judge, let's say both people are pro per is really going to decide the issue because yeah, they're going to most of the time decide on it or sometimes they can send it back and say you're you i want you to meet and confer about this before you know and continue the hearing um but ultimately at that continued hearing whoever is going to be presenting the case that's strongest um has the most you know evidence to back it up um is in line with what the law says that's who the judge is probably going to rule in favor of so i think to to talk about more about what you were saying before with pro per litigants. I know it's hard to say, oh, look at the law and try to follow the law, but really that's kind of what it is. I mean, the judge, it's rare, it's a rare occasion when the judge is going to like come completely out of left field and, um, you know, make a ruling that you couldn't foresee. So if, if the law says, you know, generally that they're going to be, there's going to have 50, 50 custody, um, then there's probably going to be 50-50. If it's not 50-50, like joint legal, um, joint physical, then there's going to be some sort of offset with it. So if you go in knowing that, you know, it'll help, it'll help manage your expectations on what to expect at the hearing. Can you explain that more? I'm, I may have misunderstood you. So you're saying if it's joint legal, joint physical, or like 50-50, there's an offset. What were you referring to? Oh, I mean, if there's no, if so if the judge doesn't order joint in both joint legal, joint physical, then there's still going to be, let's say one parent has sole, there's still going to be visitation time for the other parent, right? So there's always going to, essentially one person is not generally going to get everything um, or even most of everything. It's, there's always going to be a balance. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. The, um, when I was talking about this, about let the judge decide, it, it was usually specifically about like child support and and maybe spousal support, um, because we well, what we do for our clients is we'll run um, you know a district master calculation based on timeshare and incomes, mm -hmm. and say hey use this is not the rule use this as a guide use this is not necessarily what the court would order you know, you're better off, you know, you guys are amicable, sit down at the kitchen table and, and look at your, look at your finances, see what you need to receive to make it, see what you can afford to pay and, and see if you guys can find some middle ground. A lot of times people will come to us with already an agreement in mind as far as spouse support and child support. Some people have no idea. They'd like to see what, you know, what a report looks like, a district master looks like to see just as a launch off for the conversation to, because they think, well, this is my, you know, could it be what the judge orders? Sure. But they're not going right off of the calculation and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe the courts are even using those calculations for long-term support. Are they? Yeah, usually not. That's just yeah. for temporary support, but it does yeah. give you somewhat of an idea. It'll be some, so it's kind of somewhere in the ballpark, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So at least I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm on the right track uh, as far as trying <laughs> to help, you know, cause I don't do mediation. Um, I, I, I honestly, I tried that four or five years ago. And I just didn't have the temperament for it. Cause I, you know, people, you know, we have a lot of meteors we refer to uh, over the years and even they say, yeah, we get beat up all the time. Like they don't, they, we had the last, the last people we have here in Santa Clarita uh, mediation firm, they retired and they said, Oh, we couldn't take anymore. The clients always, you know, always beating us up. 
<laughs> so I think that those two cases I mediated, I literally said, you know, they, they say you want to make a decision. I said, once I do that, you guys are done. You're going to think I'm not on your side and, mm-hmm. you know, you guys got to make the decision. But just to hear people bicker and go back and forth, I said, that's it. I'm going back to what I do best. I think it was two cases I did and then I was, I was done. So I know, right? Sometimes it's easier just to, well, no, for you, because you like to just have it uncontested. But yeah, yeah that, I mean, sometimes it's easier to just give into the fight. <laughs> yeah. Because they'll say that I, when the people that do go to mediation, they'll come to us and say, um, what what does mediation even do? We went in there and talked and talked and we'd say, hey, we want you to make a decision and they won't make a decision for us. And I said, that's that's not their that's not their job to do that, to keep, keep the conversation going and, mm-hmm. you know, give you additional information to help you guys make those choices. I said, you can always go to court and, you know, go through all those those motions to you know, eventually get into court. But it's just it's interesting to hear that it's that they're getting it's getting pushed back on them to make the decisions on many in many uh, instances on certain um, subjects. I think in particular with child custody, I see that all the time with um, people coming into court and they want to change custody. Um, And, you know, especially if there's already a court order, it's just they don't want to change it. You know, it's unless there's something that's, you know, obviously change circumstances. If there's something that's like really pressing or clearly hurting the child or or clearly something a lot more beneficial. Um, and they'll, you know, judges will always make little orders here and there, interim orders and things like that. But I mean, actually changing the full schedule, it's, it's difficult. They'll make concessions here and there, but I think particularly with co-parenting, they just want to see that you're co-parenting because they don't want to have the court intervene in your personal life to that extent, you know? Um, and I think that that's for good reason, because otherwise, I mean, people still go back to court all the time um, to litigate it, no matter what the judge says. But yeah, I think the, ult- the a good strategy when you're dealing with divorce is that if you can't agree on everything, there are probably a lot of things that you can, you know, um, concede here and there. They do the same for you. And, you know, temperaments kind of also go down after that because you see, okay, we're contentious because we're emotional, but there actually are a lot of things that we can agree to. Um, And sometimes that does take a hearing or two to realize, you know, sometimes it does take a bad ruling to have a party eventually say, you know what, I I honestly don't care about that issue. I'm okay with it now. And that's unfortunate, but um, that is the case sometimes because they, they kind of sometimes have to see that that's the reality of it, that you're just not going to get everything that you want. And that I think that's why people get frustrated with mediators in particular. That, that seems to be the theme of this discussion is when folks go to court, you're not going to get everything you want. If you try and modify something, you may get one of the 10 things you asked for, but likely Usually not. That you get. I don't think I've ever gone to court and got every single thing granted exactly. There's always one or two little little issues that, um, you know, will eventually either, it may not be denied full out or, you know, but there's always gonna be a give and take, yeah. Because it's so nuanced. I mean, the issues are always so nuanced and the facts are so, they change all the time. So, you know, it's to be expected. You know, we were earlier talking about uh, managing client expectations, or maybe we weren't, but how, 
just in talking about you, you guys go to you know go to court. There's opposing counsel. You're fighting for your client's rights. Opposing counsel is doing the same. It's going to land somewhere in the middle. How do you manage the manage that? The expectations of your clients. Do you do you have conversations prior to the hearing and say, hey, look, this is what we're asking for. We may not get everything. We might get nothing. I mean, because you don't want to have a hearing. You come out and then your clients pissed off at you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, I try to do that, you know, before we even file a motion because that would make sense. Yeah, I mean, that's really important. But obviously, there are times when the client, because I'll always say, look, here are your options. This one has better luck at succeeding than this one or whatever. Which one do you want to go with? And then if they still choose the one that's probably not going to be granted, I remind them of that again, still file it. And then I think now their expectations are generally managed and that if you show up to the hearing and you prepare and you do everything you can to advocate the best you can um you know client expectations are were managed properly and so they're not going to like get mad at you they might you know they might not be happy obviously but um but i think that's that's where it's really important to always be thinking ahead of how, you know, what is the actual, um, what do you think is actually going to happen, predicting what probably will happen in court? And, you know, that's scary because as an attorney, you know, we're so risk averse and we're so scared of getting sued all the time. And so right. it's like, oh, we don't want to tell people this will happen or this won't happen. Right. But um, so it's like, it's like really difficult for us, I think, to do that. But you really do have to do that. Obviously, you don't have to use absolute language like we're going to win or we're going to lose. Right. But um, but I think that's where actually having the knowledge is going to help you because if you're just kind of guessing, I don't know, it depends, we'll see what happens. You know, that's not managing client expectations. You really have to look at the law, look at, you know, what you've seen in the past, maybe what you know about this judge and then lay it all out there for them. So it's pretty clear how you think it's going to go. And actually I, I try to track, um, what my predictions are for different emotions and then what the outcome is depending on the judge and different things. And um, cause that helps me to see like, okay, am I way off here? If I am, why, what, you know, what did I get wrong? Um, am I not up to date on, uh, I don't know, like not the law cause the law generally is the same, but you know, there's, it's like, what am I missing? And so I try to always keep track of that because I think that's super important. And then it also helps, your business, I think as an attorney too, you don't want to just be the attorney that's like, oh yeah, I take you to court and we lose every single time. You know what I mean? You want to be like family law. It's there's always such an emphasis on um, collaborating and trying to come to an agreement, trying to be equal, but there, there definitely are times where you win and you lose, you know? And um, so, and, and that's obviously a lot more satisfying to win with your client versus losing. There are times where you can't help it because that's just how the law is and that's how the circumstances are. But like I said, I think if you're really doing your best to lay it out there, manage client expectations with your client, and then also um, really trying hard to win anyway, you know, that's the best you can do. Makes sense. I want to ask you a question. I don't know if, if you are okay answering it. Uh, A lot of, you know, we, as you as you know, we do the the flat rate uh, flat fee pricing because <clears throat> we know what we're getting into. Some are a little bit more difficult than others, but it's 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 evened out by the ones that are that are uh, the harder ones are evened out by the easier ones. Is what I'm trying to say. But when uh, people are shocked when they when they realize like what the average cost 
of of going through divorce can be. And I know that can have a big range. Are you able to say with the average divorce, not under litigated, not over litigated, some court, some hearings, um, some, you know, is there, what would you ballpark a, a divorce case just on one party's side in your estimation? I honestly couldn't ballpark it. I know it's, you can look up statistics. Place, yeah. I but, mean, you can look up statistics because um, they exist about the average cost, cost of divorce in California um, and in the United States, but it yeah. really depends. I think, I think that if you are, but that's the thing. It's like, if it's litigious, well, what does it that depends. mean? Yeah. yeah. But I would say if it's litigious, meaning there's probably going to be a trial on one or more issues, you're yeah. looking up to hundreds of thousands of dollars because it's wow. also the course over the course of several years. Um, if it's something that's like a short-term marriage and maybe there's not a whole lot of things that you're going to court for and you do eventually settle probably closer to like, you know, tens of thousands range, yeah. but it's, so that's like the general ballpark, but I can't say that going in because sure. you really don't know. I mean, like I said, you can you can ballpark kind of like, okay, I think that this case is probably going to be pretty um, like a lot of conflict and this one may not be, but you sometimes get surprised, you know, sometimes you get surprised with how they eventually kind of kind of are able to come together and you're like, oh, wow, this is a lot easier than I thought it would be. Um, sometimes they get you know, it, it, it's so, it's so dependent. But I think um, if people were can, like worried about that, I would say if you're hiring a lawyer for your divorce and they're working on an hourly basis, expect to pay a lot of money. That's what I would say. <laughs> don't even think about like, well, can I limit it? You're not going to minimize it. Every yeah. attorney that you go for that's on an hourly basis, you're going to spend, you're going to spend more money than you want, no matter what it is, whether it's $10,000, a hundred, you're going to always spend yeah. more money than you want. So if you want a divorce that's cheap or free, then I would suggest not hiring an attorney um, and maybe doing what you do. If you can yeah. settle um, with your partner, if you can't, you can always represent yourself. So, you know, there are options, um, but it's, it's expensive to hire an attorney. No, for sure. I yeah. think the last time I did a Google search on that, it said 17,500 per person. So that would probably be, but see, is they, that contested? Is that uncontested? Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah. Um, I've in talking about how I want to make a comment. I think the answer that you can give to on every answer to what what does the law say on this is it depends, right? <laughs> because it's such, <laughs> every same. I mean, <laughs> you. Yeah. Oh no, you cut out there. Oh, sorry. I was just saying that there's no two cases that are ever exactly the same. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, it's true, but it's also like, if you like there, there is kind of a general formula, you know, especially with things that involve like child support, spousal support. Yeah. If we know the timeshare, if we know the party's incomes, um, we can, we can generally guess what it might be, you know, things like that. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, but it, but it is, it's so fact specific. It's so sure. case specific. 
how how can and I know it happens, but what are the issues being litigated that can cause a divorce to take years? Oof, anything. Like what uh, name one? That, like is there one overarching thing that people dispute that just is it that because there's so much discovery that's that's taking all this time to to gather? Is it just because hearings are four and five months apart? You know, is it what could you could say- you I would say both. I think a big one, um, I don't know if it's the most, you know, the one factor, but a big one is um, spousal support and long-term spousal support. And if, especially if one party has, is the big income earner and they have a lot of different sources that they're getting income from, that can take a long time because then you have to hire experts. Anytime you have to hire an expert, you know, it's going to take even more, you know, several more months um, you know, they analyze RSU income, analyze maybe even bonus income in, in et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's just, it can go, it can really be endless depending on, you know, the complexity, but also if the other party, it depends on how the other party wants to view it because it can, there, one person's income can be as complex as, as, as ever. But if the other party's like, you know what, I don't care. We're just going to stipulate or, okay, we're just going to go with their IED, whatever that says, then it's, you know, it's okay. But it really depends. And I think that also turns on their attorneys because there are a lot of times where I've had clients where the other side is just going after them, going after them, going after them constantly. And then it's mm-hmm. like, no, that's not your income. No, I don't believe you. Okay. Motion to compel. And it's just this constant barrage. And, you know, I'll have a client be like, that's really my income. I'm not lying. This is what I have, you know? And um, a lot of attorneys are just like, yeah, it's probably what it is. Um, and I and, and they'll say to me, the client will say, well, I don't think it's her doing it. I don't think it's my ex actually wanting this. I feel like this is her attorney because she wasn't like mm-hmm. this when we started, you know. And so there's it could be, you know, it could be that they get wrapped up in what they're I mean, you know, because if you're an attorney, like if you're a divorce attorney, you want to litigate, you want to make sure that you're getting the best result for your client. So it's understandable that you, you know, if your client says, Hey, I think he's hiding income or he's hiding this document or that, maybe you do want to, you know, do everything you can to discover that and compel that from them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a a lot of different factors. Um, it could be the attorney could be the other party who's really just, they're just gung ho and they want to do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, to answer your question, honestly, there's so many issues in divorce that could go to trial, but I do think that spousal support is a big contentious one. There's always going to be issues around that. Yeah. Interesting. Is there anything else you wanted to chat about? We've talked about quite a bit. <laughs> no, I think we covered a lot. We've we did. Yeah. We should do power. this again. Yeah. This was, this was great. Kimberly Keene, family law attorney, San Diego. I was glad to send you a referral the other day. I don't know if they called, but, uh, I, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad to have an outlet. Um, like I told you when we first uh, talked, I'm a good referrer because I'm so specific. On fortunately, we have a lot of inbound calls, so I can, you know, if we get ten calls, I'll I'll take two of them. The rest need attorneys, or I'll give them to other LDAs, just because it's a, it's just on the stickier side of things. And I'd rather do the yeah. things that are simpler and that I enjoy, and then do more marketing. As you know, I sell myself on the internet. <laughs> um, so I'd rather spend my time doing that than getting into, into the dirt with some of the, the people that are calling, but uh, yeah, I'll be happy to keep referring to you. Um, and, uh, it was great talking to you. Hang yeah, out. You just to- 